said hip hop. I hit it to the hip to the hip hip hop. You don't stop the rock to the bang bang boogie. Say up jump the boogie to the rhythm of the boogie the beat. In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. Hi Ben and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 222, The Wedding Singer. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And as always, welcome to Verbal Diorama, whether you're a brand new listener, whether you're a regular returning listener or an irregular returning listener. Thank you for being here. Thank you for choosing to listen to this podcast. And I'm even more happy than usual today to have you here for the history and legacy of the Wedding Singer, because this is the birthday episode that I do every year on my birthday. And this year, my birthday falls on a Thursday. Usually, these episodes are a bonus episode in August, but instead, you got a bonus episode last week with Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. And because this is the birthday episode, if you're listening on general release day on the Thursday, technically, I am one year older today. And it's with you. The listeners, I want to grow old with you, is quite apt for this day. But no, I'm not that old. Definitely not rosy old, anyway. I can definitely say I'm not that old. But I'm also not that old. So the birthday episode is something that traditionally I do every year. It's always a movie that means a lot to me personally. It's either a movie that I grew up with or a movie that I just love completely and utterly with all my heart. Previous birthday episodes have included The Iron Giant, Jurassic Park, Labyrinth, and Grease 2. Now, you might think that's a bit of an eclectic mix of birthday episodes, and you'd be absolutely right. And we're adding The Wedding Singer to the mix as well. Now, The Wedding Singer is one of those rare rom-coms for me that I just love. It brings a smile to my face. I think it's wonderful. I'm not a huge fan of rom-coms. I never have been. Generally, I don't enjoy rom-coms. I find them tropey. I find them cliched. But I love The Wedding Singer. I love, love, love The Wedding Singer. And so I wanted to go into the history and legacy of The Wedding Singer for you. So let's start with the trailer. Before the internet, before cell phones, before rollerblades, there was a time. Everybody on the dance floor. Very nice, Grandma Molly. When Robbie Hart was the most popular wedding singer around. You stand me right now, baby, right now. Like a record, baby, right now, right now. Hey, somebody get some pants on that kid. Until he got stood up at his own wedding. I woke up this morning and I realized I'm about to marry a wedding singer. Once again, things that could have been brought to my attention yesterday. New Line Cinema presents. Is it true that you're in the middle of a nervous breakdown? Whoopity doo! Adam Sandler. Hey, psycho. Get out of my Van Halen t-shirt before you jinx the band and they break up. And Drew Barrymore. 
You're the wedding singer. How you doing? I'm Robbie. I'm Julia. In a story about finding love where you least expect it. Uh-oh. What? You like her? No, I don't. This is my fiancé, Glenn. I don't even know your last name. It's Gulia. Julia's last name is going to be Gulia. Julia Gulia. That's funny. Why is that funny? I, I don't know. I just... Now, the girl of his dreams is about to marry Mr. Wrong. That's grade A, top choice meat. Good morning. You can make breakfast for men? Unless he can pull off the performance of a lifetime. She and Glenn just jumped a plane to Vegas. Go get her. All right, all right. of leaving Glenn for the wedding singer? He's more than a lover. What do you think of the jacket? I don't know, man. I would lose that glove. You look nuts. He's more than a legend. You are the worst wedding singer in the world, buddy. Well, I have a microphone, and you don't. So you will listen to every damn word I have to say! The Wedding Singer. I said hip hop. I hip it to the hip to the hip hip hop. You don't stop the rock to the bang bang boogie. Say up jump the boogie to the rhythm of the boogie the boogie. It's 1985 and Robbie Hart is the local wedding singer in Richfield, New Jersey. He stood up at the altar by his fiancée, Linda, who decides that the prospect of marrying a guy who sings at wedding receptions doesn't equal the attraction she felt when he was the lead singer in a rock band. Robbie finds consolation in his friendship with Julia Sullivan, the new waitress at the reception hall where he performs. Julia asks Robbie to help her plan her upcoming wedding to her fiancé, Glenn, and they find themselves falling in love with each other. But she's shortly going to be Mrs. Julia Gulia, and he finds his ex-fiancée, Linda, coming back to him. Let's run through the cast. We have Adam Sandler as Robbie Hart, Drew Barrymore as Julia Sullivan, Christine Taylor as Holly Sullivan, Alan Covert as Sammy, Angela Featherston as Linda, Matthew Glave as Glenn Gulia, Alexis Arquette as George, Christina Pickles as Angie Sullivan, Ellen Albertini Dow as Rosie, Steve Buscemi as David, John Lovitz as Ginny Moore, and Billy Idol as himself. The Wedding Singer was written by Tim Hurley and was directed by Frank Carucci. Over the last few years, 80s and 90s nostalgia has been hitting big, whether it's fashion, music, or indeed films and TV. It's nothing new. Back in the 80s, films like Dirty Dancing, Stand By Me, and the obvious answer, Back to the Future, were sometimes literally going back in time to the 50s and 60s eras. It's something people a hell of a lot smarter than I am refer to as the 30-year cycle, or the nostalgia pendulum. Now, it's not a set 30 years, as in you have to do it every 30 years. Theoretically, this cycle can be anywhere between 25 to 40 years. Basically, however long it takes the children of that generation to form an emotional connection to that era, grow up and become consumers of culture as adults, with money to spend on that feeling of nostalgia from seeing something akin to your childhood. That can be something positive, such as Dirty Dancing, from the experience of a young Jewish girl holidaying in the Catskill Mountains with her family in the 60s, or images of Cold War fears from something like The Iron Giant. Even Disney are profiteering off it with their quote-unquote live-action remakes of animated movies that came out in the 90s. 
And I don't think I need to talk about the amazing success of Stranger Things for Netflix as well. But in the late 90s, a movie was made that was set in the mid-80s. And maybe they didn't care to make its time period historically accurate, but instead to write a love letter to that decade and a love letter to love itself. Unabashed, unironic, free from a traditional toxic male lead, that movie was The Wedding Singer. And arguably, while it was probably due to be made in 2015, it could easily be made today, it remains the most wonderful time capsule of a rom-com. Just as a point of interest, making a movie set in 1985 in 1998 is like making a movie set in 2010 today, which literally makes no sense to me whatsoever. It didn't really start out as that wonderful time capsule of a rom-com, though. Adam Sandler, a guy who I can genuinely count the number of movies of his that I like on one hand, because it's mostly just this, would have a meet-cute of his own with his college dorm mate Frank Caracci and Tim Herlihy. They would go and watch Sandler do stand-up, and it wasn't long before Sandler started to get bit parts in shows like The Cosby Show, and ended up being recommended to none other than Saturday Night Live's Lord Michaels, where he was hired to write for SNL in 1990 becoming a featured player the following year. He was fired from SNL along with Chris Farley in 1995 after starring in Coneheads with Farley, David Spade, Dan Aykroyd, Phil Hartman and Jane Curtin. He'd followed that with a role in Airheads in 1994 with Brenda Frazier and future co-star Steve Buscemi. Also in 1995, he headlined his first film, Billy Madison, directed by Tamara Davis, we'll come back to her, which was also written by Sandler and co-written by his friend Tim Herlihy. Herlihy had also worked at Saturday Night Live, remaining at the show after Sandler left in 1995, rising to head writer and then producer. Together, they'd go on to write Happy Gilmore, but the dynamic duo wanted to become a terrific trio. Sandler and Herlihy had had the idea for a movie about a wedding singer who gets his heart broken at the altar, but then has to go back and do weddings. Frank Caracci liked the idea of a movie set in the 1980s. Together, the trio pitched the idea to New Line, who loved it, and Sandler and Hernahy took a year to write the initial script. But like Sandler's other movies, it was very male-focused. Meanwhile, Tamara Davis had worked with Drew Barrymore on Gun Crazy in 1992, and then again on Best Men in 1997, the year after Barrymore's career-resurrecting cameo in Scream. Davis suggested Adam Sandler and Drew Barrymore to each other as a potential for collaboration, and Barrymore approached Sandler as a huge fan to propose working together. They met at the Newsroom Cafe, had coffee, and she envisaged a modern, weird, headburn, Tracy old Hollywood couple. After their meeting, they didn't have a plan in mind, but in retrospect, it made perfect sense to get her involved in this 80s wedding comedy and give the screenplay a female perspective. But three dudes know when they've got their work cut out for writing women, so you get a pro in. The Hollywood script doctor of the 90s, Carrie Fisher. She remains uncredited for much of her script work, so she was very much a hidden gem in Hollywood. She rewrote dialogue in Star Wars, Hook, Sister Act, and Last Action Hero. She even worked on the script for Screen 3 and gave herself a role as a Carrie Fisher lookalike. Carrie Fisher is a bit of an unsung hero for female representation in cinema, and it was Carrie Fisher who saved The Wedding Singer from being your typical bro comedy to becoming something altogether a bit more wholesome. Frank Caracci and Carrie Fisher worked on The Wedding Singer together at Fisher's home in Los Angeles for six months, 
Unfortunately, it meant that Tim Hernahy was essentially fired at this point, but he would still retain a full writing credit for reasons that will become clear shortly. Fisher fleshed out the female roles and helped them solve their lead couple's will-they-or-won't-they dilemma. Together, Fisher and Karachi watched old romantic comedies like Roman Holiday and Breakfast at Tiffany's for inspiration. They landed on key obstacles to the pair's inevitable coupling, such as Robbie losing faith when Julia's cousin Holly tells him that Julia's only marrying the cheating Miami voice-worshipping Glenn for his money, Robbie showing up at Julia's house to finally confess his feelings, only to see her in a window looking joyful in her wedding dress, and Julia arriving at Robbie's door only to find his ex-fiancée Linda wearing nothing but his Van Halen t-shirt. Fisher's contributions were key, but they were not set in stone. She had changed nearly all of the dialogue, and Sandler's voice was deemed lost. Plot-wise, though, she sold the second half of the movie with that old Hollywood thing. After Fisher's draft came in, Karachi, Hernahy and Sandler regrouped. Along with Sandler's longtime producing partner, Jack Giraputo, another classmate of his from NYU, they sat around the actors' dining room table, changed every line or joke back to the way it was, or came up with a new line or joke. So much so that only one line of Fisher's was left in the movie, but her structural work remained, and remains key to the movie's enduring appeal. She would say in the interview with AV Club that she had a lot of fun doing script work on The Wedding Singer. Even a much younger and much less famous Judd Apatow would also take a crack at the script. This was new territory for Adam Sandler to be a romantic leading man and not a comedic leading man, but it was also a step towards a career resurrection for Drew Barrymore. She'd started her film production company Flower Films in 1995 with Nancy Javonin, but hadn't yet started to produce movies. Her first would be Never Been Kissed in 1999. Sandler also had his production company, Happy Madison. Neither would produce The Wedding Singer, but it was the start of a decades-long friendship and regular collaboration, arguably of which nothing else they've done actually comes close to this one. Without the likability of Barrymore and the sincerity of Sandler, their character's love wouldn't feel legitimate. Drew Barrymore was the only actor ever considered for Julia, despite what many trivia sites suggest, and this fact has come direct from the director Frank Caracci. Barrymore wasn't the obvious choice, being a former child star with notable wild child tendencies, but she'd just come off her wildly successful cameo in Scream, and Caracci and Sandler saw her and saw a star who deserved another time in the spotlight. With Drew Barrymore firmly on board with Julia Sullivan, the rest of the cast started to come together with no less than six people who had or would go on to star in the cast of Friends, but a bit like Julia's cousin Holly, at that point, who hasn't. Christine Taylor would confess, actually, on Drew Barrymore's talk show that she was the total opposite of her character Holly, but the two women reminisced about how much fun the production was and how easy the audition process was for Taylor. The six people, by the way, are Christine Taylor, Angela Featherston, Alexis Arquette, Christina Pickles, John Lovitz, and Brian Posen. Taylor would play Bonnie, who dated Ross. Featherston would play Chloe, the Xerox girl who Ross went with while he and Rachel were on a break. Arquette played Phoebe Stalker Malcolm. Pickles was, of course, Ross and Monica's doting mother, Judy Geller. Lovitz played Steve, a restaurant owner high on cannabis, and Posen played a messenger delivering the manuscript in which Joey Tribbiani's character, Dr. Drake Ramore, dies. The wedding singer was shot over 34 days in Los Angeles with locations found that looked like they could be in New Jersey, including in Sierra Madre, San Marino, Pasadena and downtown LA. And it was a fun shoot despite the quick turnaround. 
Days were long, but Sandler and Barrymore's off-screen friendship was tight. Sandler could always just make her laugh, and much of that laughter captured on film was genuine, which adds to the authenticity of their on-screen relationship. The movie is brimming with noteworthy musical performances by Sandler, including his extra bitter interpretation of Love Stinks, which is a real song, by the way, and the original songs he penned, Somebody Kill Me Please and Grow Old With You, not to mention a gamely committed Alexis Arquette with an accurate Boy George imitation. The highlight, though, is the seminal 1979 old-school hip-hop song Rapper's Delight, performed by the late Ellen Albertini Dow. She was 85 when she was cast as Robbie's friendly neighbour Rosie, who wants to wow her husband at their 50th anniversary party by singing Till There Was You. Originally, Rosie was going to sing a heavy metal song. Ozzy Osbourne had been mentioned, but then rap was mentioned and Rumpus Delight just fit the bill. Frank Karachi tutored Ellen Albertini Dow in the lyrics and rhythm. She couldn't keep up, so he suggested they dance and sing. And this is why she's doing a little dance in the movie. The dancing is how she kept up with the rhythm. She died in 2015 at the amazing age of 101, and what an incredible lady she was. Also no longer with us is the late Alexis Arquette, who plays George. She died aged just 47 in 2016. Arquette was a well-known and outspoken trans activist, and one of the things I think endears this movie is the character of George, and how George may only know one song and be booed off stage for only knowing one song, plus a variety of instruments. But it's the fact that the character is clearly portrayed to be queer or gender non-conforming, and it's just not a big deal. George goes wedding dress shopping and tries on dresses with everyone, and it's just normal. There's no snide comments about George, no transphobic slurs, no characters speculating whether they're male or female. Boy George himself would come out as a fan of Arquette's performance, saying he found it hilarious. And a 2016 concert just after Arquette's passing, Boy George dedicated Do You Really Want to Hurt Me to the memory of Alexis Arquette and to her family. It's as if Karachi, Hernahy and Sandler were concerned that their period piece wouldn't be convincing enough because the three cram in as many 80s pop culture references as they possibly can. Glenn Goulia aspires to be Don Johnson in Miami Vice and drives a Back to the Future DeLorean. Adam Sandler's hairstyle and the undoubted amount of hairspray used to achieve it is unattainable in any other period of human history. There are out-of-date jokes about impossible Rubik's Cubes, liking Flock of Seagulls, and who shot JR, that would have long since lost their relevance in 1985. David Lee Roth did actually leave Van Halen in 1985, though, so Linda really did jinx the band by wearing their T-shirt. And speaking of bands and somebody who does play in a band, it's called Dogstar, by the way, is the wonderful Mr. Keanu Reeves. And this is a part of the podcast where I link the movie down featuring with Keanu Reeves. It's called the obligatory Keanu reference. And actually, someone got there first. Because on YouTube, there's a video called Keanu Reeves is a Wedding Singer, which uses a deep fake of Keanu's face and voice over the top of Robbie singing to Julia. It's uncanny valley as hell. But I will put a link to it in the show notes because it's just something that you have to see before you die. So go watch Keanu Reeves being a Wedding Singer. Think of this podcast. Think of the obligatory Keanu reference. It may be one of the best ones I've ever done, and I didn't even do it. So, huge thank you to the person on YouTube who made that deep fake. I have mentioned a bit about the music, but I want to go into the music in a bit more detail, because the music of The Wedding Singer is integral to its 1985 setting. 
It's both diegetic and non-diegetic. The movie also features a cameo by Billy Idol. Now, Billy Idol wasn't their first choice. It was, just like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure from episode 220, Eddie Van Halen. Then they thought of Billy Idol, who was persuaded to cameo by his young son, who was a huge fan of Adam Sandler. Idol figured he'd have to watch the movie with his son eventually, so why not be involved? He also experienced a brand new generation of fans from his appearance in the movie. Frank Karachi would tell Billy Idol that he would dress like him to get girls, and Billy Idol would respond by saying that he would dress like him to also get girls. And I think the one song that everyone can really remember from this movie is Grow Old With You. And the concept of growing old with you was there early on in the movie, and Adam Sandler took that and wrote the song for the finale. And the magic in that scene really came from Drew Barrymore. She didn't hear the song until they shot her angle. So those tears are real tears. Julia really does love Robbie in that moment. In fact, all of the scenes of Julia hearing Robbie's songs, Barrymore insisted she hear them for the first time during filming to get her genuine reaction. The Wedding Singer and The Wedding Singer Volume 2 are the two soundtrack albums from the movie. While many of the songs were performed by the actors in the film, the soundtrack albums primarily featured the original recordings of the songs, as well as the songs that played in the background. The only song that doesn't have that is Rapper's Delight, which was the original recording combined with Ellen Albertini Dow's rendition. The original soundtrack was certified two times platinum in the US and Australia, platinum in Canada and gold in the UK. So Titanic was released on the 19th of December 1997 and I think we forget how big that movie actually was. It's still the second highest movie with the most consecutive weekends at number one in the US box office, 15 weeks. 16 weeks is the record held by E.T. But the reason I mentioned the behemoth that was Titanic is because The Wedding Singer was released on the 13th of February 1998. And this was on purpose to get that Valentine's box office, but it had to settle for second place due to the incumbent Titanic. Three weeks at number two behind the biggest movie in the world is not too shabby. It held off competition from Sphere that first week and only dropped down to third in its fourth week after the release of US Marshals. It even held off Twilight from not debuting higher than fourth. Karachi, Barrymore, Sandler, Hurley and producer Jack Giraputo flew to New York, rented a bus and went theatre to theatre in Manhattan on opening night. They'd ask if they could peek their heads in and were told things like, all four screens are sold out. They were able to duck into a few screenings, stand in the back, see people laughing and enjoying the movie and then they'd move on to the next theatre. And that proved to them just how big and popular this movie was. But just in case you didn't know, it made back its $18 million budget on its opening weekend alone and ended up grossing $80.2 million domestically in the US and $43.1 million internationally for a total worldwide gross of $123.3 million. It also grew even more popular on VHS and DVD and its fan base has grown exponentially over time. And while fans love it, critics were split. It currently stands at 72% of Rotten Tomatoes. Siskel and Ebert actually hated the movie, criticising it for borrowing from classic rom-coms of the past. But to be honest, that's what every romantic movie does. That's how tropes exist. It is generally seen as one of Sandler's best movies, though. And it's no surprise that The Wedding Singer was turned into a Broadway musical in 2006. 
because of its abundance of sing-along worthy moments. The somewhat successful play, which starred Stephen Lynch as Robbie and Laura Benanti as Julia, was co-written by Tim Herlihy and ran for approximately 300 performances and received five Tony nominations. Since it ended in 2007, it's had a second run in both international and high school performances, preserving the affection for The Wedding Singer. There is no Wedding Singer 2, but there are two pseudo-sequels, reuniting Adam Sandler and Drew Barrymore as love interests, 51st Dates, which came out in 2004 and blended in 2014, which reunited Sandler and Barrymore with Frank Caracci as director. Neither quite hit the high heights of The Wedding Singer critically, but both would do more at the box office. Most romantic comedies are pro-love or pro-marriage, but they're almost exclusively told by male writers writing female protagonists. And maybe this is why I don't like the genre overall. The protagonists are usually unlikable or unrelatable, and it's almost exclusively focused on a young career-driven woman who meets a guy who challenges her perceptions, and there's usually another woman after him, and it's also tropey. But The Wedding Singer rings different. Not just for rom-coms, but for Sandler's brand of comedy. Most of which, as I've alluded to, I can safely say is not for me. The eternal man-child comedy is not my bag, baby. But here, Sandler steps away from that. His Robbie is earnest and sweet and openly vulnerable. He is the romantic lead, not the female character. He doesn't have to go from macho man to nerd to win over the girl. He's the nerd who wanted to be the lead singer of a rock band, but now just happily geeks weddings and lives in his sister's basement, dreaming of marrying his perfect woman. He's humble and gentle, and to be honest, that's what most women actually want. Julia is similarly sweet and earnest, having moved across the country to be closer to her fiancé, Glenn, a man who will seemingly never set a wedding date. So when he does, she's ecstatic, until she realises that she's going to become Mrs. Julia Gulia. And here's the thing. We've all done the Mrs. First Name, His Last Name thing. Even me. And this is coming from someone who, when she got married, didn't take her husband's last name. But that doesn't mean that I never did it. Julia glowing at the prospect of being Mrs. Robbie Hart is so sweet and life-affirming, even for someone cynical about love and relationships like me. Julia, though, is not cynical. This isn't a chalk and cheese pairing. Robbie and Julia are the same people. Their romance is simple and gentle, and it's all the better for it. Sure, man and woman meet and don't realise they're perfect for each other till the very end of the movie is the ultimate romantic cliché. The fact that Sandler and Barrymore have genuine, real chemistry saves it from becoming its own cliché. It does this without undermining the love story or making Julia look dumb for tolerating Sandler's trademark angry outbursts. Robbie's arc centres on becoming the person he was prior to his breakup from Linda, as opposed to the immature man-child who must mature in order to be worthy of his love interest. The Wedding Singer is remarkably charming for a genre of films that frequently comes across as smug and contrived. It's easy for the audience to genuinely believe that Robbie and Julia were meant to be together rather than the plot requiring it. Showing non-toxic masculinity and highlighting how problematic and misogynistic it actually is and how it affects men in general. This is a movie set in the 80s with a non-toxic masculine character openly challenging a toxic masculine character in an era when most men were cultivating and aspiring to be toxic masculinity. And while Drew Barrymore is literally America's sweetheart and always will be, Sandler has had a hit and miss career. 
His comedic efforts have ranged from good to terrible, but when he stretches himself and his range, like movies like Punch Drunk Love, Spanglish and Click, he actually comes across so much better. I've not seen Uncut Gems, but without the wedding singer to guide him away from manchild comedy, he may have stayed in his comfort zone and not given us any of the genuinely good performances that he actually has. Romantic comedies frequently promote the fantasy of having it all, having a fantastic partner and a rewarding career. Meanwhile, the wedding singer questions the accepted notions of what having it all actually means. Maybe you don't have to be professionally ambitious to lead a fulfilling life. Maybe having it all could include spending time with loved ones, helping others, volunteering, working a job that makes you happy, even if it doesn't pay well or seems kind of weird, and living in the suburbs with someone kind, gentle and honest, who lets you have the window seat when you're flying over a pretty view. If you want the window seat, of course. And that's what having it all should be. The Wedding Singer is my favourite rom-com. It's timeless, it's unique, it's the sort of movie you could happily grow old with. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on The Wedding Singer. And I'm not here asking for birthday gifts, but if you would like to give me a birthday gift, here's some really quick, easy and free ways you could give me a gift right now. You could leave a rating or review wherever you found this podcast. Ideally, five stars. That would be the best gift that you could give me. You could tell a friend or family member about this podcast. Or you can find me and follow me, retweet and like me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, threads and Letterboxd. Yes, I am still calling it Twitter. Just a quick note on the next episode that's going to be coming next Thursday. Sequel Tember returns for the sequel to last year's Sequel Tender. This is Sequel Tender, colon, the sequel. And it was a lot of fun last year to look at sequels to previous episode movies. So it's back and it's bigger than ever. And when I say bigger, I mean seriously bigger. Because we're starting off with the biggest superhero team up ever until Avengers Infinity War and Endgame turned up. It adapts one of the most iconic comic stories of all time, set in 2023, actually. In 2014, we got X-Men Days of Future Past, the sequel to X-Men First Class, and an ambitious undertaking that has actually kind of been mostly overlooked now for various reasons. But please join me next week for the history and legacy of X-Men Days of Future Past. As always, I'm hugely grateful to the amazing patrons who support this podcast tirelessly and fearlessly. They are the ones keeping the lights on. They are the ones keeping the subscriptions going. They are the ones keeping the equipment coming in. And I'm so very grateful to all of them and to their constant support of me and Verbal Diorama and what I'm trying to achieve with Verbal Diorama. So thank you so much to you amazing patrons. Feel free to get in touch with me if you want to say hi or you want to give me some feedback. You can email me, verbaldiorama at gmail.com. You could go to my website, verbaldiorama.com and fill out the contact form or get in touch on social media at verbaldiorama on all of the social medias you can possibly find. Going to keep it short and sweet because I've got birthday things to do. So, and finally. Yes, it's ladies night and the feeling's right. Oh, yes, it's ladies night. Oh, what a, oh, what a night. Oh, yes, it's ladies night and the feeling's right. Man, I've never seen
seen it from his perspective before. Is this what I look like? No, 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 you're much better than him. He's ridiculous. Romantic lady, single baby, sophisticated mama. Ladies, not all night. Thank you. This is Jimmy Moore saying that ain't no slack in my garage. Bye. Movie should know. Movie should talk. Crinkle, crinkle, crinkle.